0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar panel. Wind turbines.
1: We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our
0: lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now.
1: The new phase we're going into, related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it.
0: Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 1st, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. We have done numerous episodes on particular aspects of integrating distributed energy resources, or DERs, with the power grid. From our discussion about the technical requirements for running a grid mostly on renewables in episode two, all the way up to our recent discussion in episode 90 about how wholesale markets might have to evolve in order to accommodate more renewables, storage, demand-side resources, and other DERs. But what we haven't yet really talked about is how the influx of DERs onto the power system will ultimately transform its very nature the participants in it, and what they do. But that's what our guest in this episode is thinking about these days. Longtime listeners will remember Lorenzo Christoff from our conversation about grid architecture all the way back in episode 10, when he was nearing the end of his career at the California ISO, the wholesale market and transmission operator for the state of California, where he spent 18 years working on market design, infrastructure policy, and designing the Locational Marginal Pricing, or LMP, market system. Now he has moved on to his own consulting activities and he's clearly having some more deep thoughts about where energy transition on the grid is taking us. So today we're going to discuss his most recent paper in which he imagines a different sort of electricity system than the one we have today. One which is basically composed from the bottom up, where millions of distributed resources become the dominant resources and the grid assumes a subordinate role as a residual supplier of energy. And where the control of the system is also decentralized through the actions of millions of devices, rather than everything being controlled by the transmission system operators, or TSOs, or distribution system operators, or DSOs. But that's not all. Lorenzo sees a future in which the current responsibilities of TSOs and DSOs are quite diminished and distributed across the system, where regulators and legislators have to exercise much more active leadership, creating the rules and standards by which customers and their behind-the-meter resources participate in the market, and where customers and local governments assume crucial roles in governing the energy system and setting its development course." It's a fascinating, heady vision, one that goes far beyond the tired platitudes about how utilities need to have new business models into one that actually imagines what those look like, and one that I think you'll find as stimulating as I did. And while we've got him here, of course, we'll have to get his opinion on the future of PG&E, California's largest utility, which is currently in bankruptcy. Then in the news segment, we'll recognize a bit of fresh evidence that Lorenzo's vision is already becoming true. We'll take a look at a new big battery project in the U.S. that will dwarf the big battery in Australia. We'll explore two new exciting transmission projects. Yes, I said exciting transmission projects. (laughs) And we'll check out a new citation of our guest from the previous episode, Tim Buckley, talking about the future of coal in Japan. But first, our conversation with Lorenzo Kristoff, recorded March twenty-second, two 2019. So let's bring him back into the conversation. Good to have you back on the Energy Transition Show, Lorenzo. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me. It's
1: always a pleasure to converse with you about these important topics.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, I think your previous appearance on the show way back in episode 10 was probably one of the most downloaded and most eagerly appreciated shows that we've done so far. Oddly enough, there's apparently a huge appetite out there for super geeky thoughts about grid architecture. So (laughs) I'm sure we're all excited to have you back. Oh, no good. <laughs> Although, maybe we'll see if we can do this one with a geek rating below 11.
1: Yeah, I'll try not to be too geeky this time. I think <laughs> there's a lot of very sort of down-to-earth considerations in what we'll talk about as well.
0: I think so, too. Although, you know, it's not that you weren't so geeky. Like, I think back in that episode, you were actually very clear and plain in your language. It's just that... Uh, material is so esoteric. Like how many people think about grid architecture? Mm-hmm. This one I think is going to be a little more accessible because it has more to do with governance and the participation of elected officials and that kind of thing. So let's let's dive right in. I mean there are so many things that I want to talk with you today about, like the fate of PG and E in the light of its bankruptcy, over wildfire liability, the procurement challenges for CCAs, and so many other things, but just to start with, I want to explore your recent paper titled, The Bottom-Up Revolution of the Electric Power System, The Pathway to the Integrated Decentralized System, which was published in the March 2019 edition of IEEE Power and Energy Magazine. In that paper, you imagine a different sort of electricity system than the one we have today, which you call the Integrated Decentralized Power System. And in that system, behind-the-meter energy resources like distributed rooftop solar and residential battery storage systems, as well as control systems, like devices that can control heating and cooling systems dynamically based on grid conditions and power prices, could lead us to a point where distributed resources are the dominant resources, and the grid is acting actually as a residual supplier of energy, not the primary supplier. And where the control of the system is also somewhat decentralized, with maybe millions of devices participating in some sort of computer-based negotiations and actions, rather than everything being controlled by the bulk power system and distribution grid operators. And in this paradigm, you imagine that the bulk power system would have perhaps fewer generators with higher capacity factors, while the transmission system would have less congestion and the tasks of balancing the system and managing the variability of DERs would largely move to the distribution system and even to behind the meter resources. Is that about right?
1: Well, I think that's a good description, but incomplete. And I would just add some pieces to that to complete the picture. Great. I guess the first thing I would add is that I'm not seeing that we're going to eliminate the need for grid operators, both for the transmission and distribution systems. So the ISO, for example, would still be balancing the system. And I don't want to suggest from the way you've described it that those entities go away. I think they're important as as is the distribution operator as well. And I'm not advocating really leaving those entities behind because I think they do have a crucial role to play, but their functions will be a bit different from today as I'm seeing it. And in particular, down at the distribution level, what I've tried to describe in that paper and elsewhere is the notion of a new set of performance specifications, let's say, and functional requirements on a distribution operator for a world with high volumes of distributed resources that is somewhat analogous to what the ISO does on the transmission grid. That is, the ISO is providing open access or non-discriminatory transmission service in order to facilitate a wholesale market, and the ISO is the operator of that market but not a participant. And what I see for a distribution system operator, and I'll clarify at this point, I'm not advocating an independent distribution system operator, as some parties have said, I'm not saying that's a bad idea either, I'm kind of indifferent about it at the moment preferring to focus on what are the attributes that we're looking for. And the attributes are to be able to have a system on distribution where DER can provide services, get fairly compensated for those services, and where the DSO is operating the grid in such a way that it has a complementary function to the ISO, which simplifies the ISO's operation. ISO is still balancing the bulk power system, but down at the distribution level, there's a certain amount of balancing that the DSO is doing as well. And then a similar relationship can then be realized at lower levels, where the relationship between the DSO and, say, a university campus microgrid can be, in many ways, similar to the relationship between the ISO and the DSO where the focus is really on the interfaces between those entities, rather than having visibility to
0: what's inside them. Okay, and so that takes us back to the layered decomposition model that you shared with us way back in episode 10, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I think thinking in terms of a layered architecture is really part of how this whole thing works. And that seems to me an important piece of thinking about the future power system.
0: I mean, this would really amount to a pretty radical shift in roles for everyone involved in the electricity system, right? It would mean a big shift for the distributed energy resources themselves and the control systems that manage them, because they would be assuming a more primary role on the electricity system instead of being sort of small, not terribly significant. Resources that are just sort of bolted onto the edges of the grid. It would be a big shift for utilities who would shift to more of a role where they're just mostly maintaining wires and doing billing and that sort of thing rather than providing all the electricity and having total responsibility for maintaining a reliable system, while at the same time figuring out how to accommodate a growing number of DERs doing all sorts of things on the system. It would significantly change the role of those who manage the bulk power system, the ISOs, as you say, like your former employer the California Independent System Operator, as the responsibility for balancing the bulk power system, which was always their sole domain, is gradually taken over at some level by others, while the bulk power system itself becomes more stable and less variable. And it would be a big shift for regulators in the ways that might be really sort of hard to imagine right now, but it would probably include specifying interface requirements and rules by which customers and their behind-the-meter resources participate in the market, right? So you're right. There are pretty
1: radical shifts involved. But I'd like to reframe that a little bit because I don't view what I've been developing as concepts and advocating for the future power system as the driver of the shifts. I think the driver is coming from the fact that we're going to have more renewable energy on the grid at utility scale. We're going to have lots more distributed resources. There's going to be a lot greater concern with local resilience and what it means to create local resilience. And it's really these changes that are the drivers. What I'm trying to think about is what's the best way to get there? What's the best way to facilitate it? And yes, there will be shifts in what these various entities have to do, but they need to adapt to these changes one way or another. Mm. I'm trying to think of what would be a good way for them to adapt. So for example, the trends that I just mentioned are really driving a need to rethink how power systems operate and how their markets work and how they're planned, you know? So going back to the grid architecture question, grid architecture, I'll mention for folks who are not familiar with the idea, but grid architecture as a discipline to think about a complex, very large complex system starts with the objectives. What do we want that system to accomplish? And from there, it goes to, Performance. What are the ways that it has to perform? What functions does it need to perform well in order to meet those objectives? And then down to, okay, who are the key actors in that system? And what functional roles and responsibilities do we want them to take on and be accountable for in order to achieve the performance, in order to realize the goals and objectives? So I think about it in those terms. So when you start with DERs, how I see the shift for DERs is being able to be in an environment where they have lots more opportunities to realize their value. I think part of the future value of DERs is going to be realized through being substitutes for grid infrastructure, ways in which that we can meet the needs for energy at a local level without having to build T&D infrastructure to get there. So Mm. if you go back to the 20th century concept, you have big power plants at a distance, power moving one direction over high voltage, then down to low voltage, and customers at the other end being largely exogenous, flipping their light switch. And you have a reliability standard that says the lights need to come on 99.999% of the time. And so you've got a design paradigm that says, let's build infrastructure that can meet the peak loads that occur in whatever, 1% or half of 1% of the hours and excess capacity the rest of the time. Well, we shouldn't be building systems like that anymore because now all the action is at the grid edge and we can manage the shape of demand so that we're not building power systems to meet infrequent peaks, we're building them for more of a steady state kind of need and thereby recognizing that these DERs have value in offsetting those needs for large infrastructure. So in a sense, this is just a way for them to realize, the DER developers and the parties who invest in them, a way for them to realize the value in a new world where energy needs are driven locally and met to a large extent locally. Similarly, when you get to the utilities, well, Existing distribution utilities provide reliable distribution service. That's their job and their mandate. And that doesn't really change, but the technical requirements change because now they're just not moving power one way out to customers. They're actually integrating the operation of a lot of diverse devices owned by diverse players. I sort of see it as every point of interconnection on their system is a potential participant in a network. Instead of it being a customer who's getting kilowatt hours, you now have behind that meter a participant in maintaining reliable operation and participating in the network or the local market that you're operating on. So it's an evolution of what distribution utilities already do, more so than a drastic change. And then moving to the ISO, having this layered architecture with DSOs that are really capable of doing this local balancing and are running local markets for grid services, etc. from DERs, I think that makes the ISO's job much easier in the future than imagining it having to include 30,000 tiny resources in its market optimization. <laughs> you know, With this approach, the ISO can simply look at the TD interface and it's the DSO's job on the other side of that interface to manage a rel- system. The ISO manages to the interface. And granted, we need important standards and accountability and enforcement such that these interface requirements are well-defined and maintained. These are crucially important. But if the ISO can simply look at TD interfaces and not be concerned with thousands and thousands of small resources on the south side of those interfaces, I think the ISO's job is easier. For regulators, it is very different. There's no question about that. But again, it's part of the whole industry transformation. I think the future is not about simply delivering kilowatt hours. It's about services, energy services, and what do parties who use energy need, and how do they get those services met, and what's the role of the system in providing them. So the big shift is really in the
0: thinking realm, first of all. Yeah, well, as I think we all well know, that's one of the hardest shifts to do, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> is to get people to change the way they think. I mean, uh, there are so yeah. many aspects of the energy transition of the battle over climate change that we're currently involved in that, you know, we have the technical resources, they're economically viable, we know how to do it, the only thing standing in the way, only in quotes, is changing the way that people think. And that's turned out to be one of the most intractable aspects of this. Mm -hmm. I certainly take your point that you're not just starting with a sort of a blank sheet of paper here saying, all right, you know, if I'm king, this is how I design the system and trying to force a new idea of grid architecture on the world, but rather responding to what you see as an influx of DERs that's sort of happening of its own volition. And it's not being driven by utilities or ISOs or regulators. So I take that point, but I just have to wonder, like, how are all these different parties going to deal with this change, knowing how resistant to change they are? I mean, I can think of a million examples of people resisting change that's good for them. And they know it's good for them, but they're still resisting it because it's different, because it's scary to have to change the way you do things.
1: Well, that certainly is a factor. I I won't disagree with you on that, but I see a lot of people starting to think differently. In the circles that I encounter among professional colleagues, there's a lot of people who are starting to realize that these kinds of changes need to happen and that it's largely a bottom-up driven change. In some ways, the earth is collaborating with us. It's not just humans having to figure it out, but in communities where they've been devastated by wildfires or by floods, they're starting to have an idea of what resilience means, Mm -hmm. you know, and... I think that notion, the word resilience has gained a lot of currency in just the last couple of years. Starting That's true. At the national level, there was that DOE effort about fuel supplies, but it's really permeated into all levels of energy supply. And I think as we start to bring resilience into the picture, and by that I mean being able to sustain critical functionality in a more disruptive future, where the volatility and the frequency and the impact of external events, say, is much more severe than it has been in the past. How do we sustain critical functions? And All of that is local because the impacts are always local. It wipes out local infrastructure, it wipes out towns and houses, and it affects people often in a life-threatening way where they live. So the preparation for it needs to be done locally, and unless we do it locally and broadly, then we don't have resilience. So I think that conversation is just starting to get off the ground, and that's gonna, I think, wake up a lot of people to the seriousness of what we're facing.
0: Yeah, I think you're right about that, you know, as I think back. In fact, it'd be interesting to do a little Google Trends analysis or something like that to see how the word resilience started to gain currency. I mean, I certainly detected a big uptick in interest in that sort of thing after Superstorm Sandy, bigger than, you know, the reaction we saw after Katrina, that's for sure. But then when Harvey slammed Houston, and knocked out a big part of our oil infrastructure and put a lot of our oil and gas workers in dire conditions. I think that really got a lot of people's attention and started to make resilience something that was being taken very seriously by all sorts of people.
1: Yeah, the changes are in the air. So I think, you know, I continue to have conversations along this line at every opportunity I possibly can, because to me, a lot of it is just the conversations that we have with our colleagues.
0: Yeah, I take that point for sure. You know, your vision implies not just energy transition in terms of which fuels we use, but a transition in how we manage the electricity system. I mean, instead of just DERs continuing to grow and become a larger part of the system in an uncontrolled way, while grid operators continue to play their conventional role and just think about procuring enough supply, We're going to be moving to this different operational paradigm in which regulators and utilities essentially set up new incentives and requirements designed to incentivize DERs and buy services from them as a way of intentionally shaping demand. Or at least that's how I'm reading your concept here.
1: Yeah, I think that's basically the right idea. There's a subtle paradigm shift implied in what you just said, which is what's the primary entity here. I'm not sure if entity is the right word, but the power system doesn't exist for its own sake. Right. Right. Yeah. People, communities, buildings need to use energy. Factories, farms, they have uses that for which they need energy. And it's those uses that are the drivers. And so let's ask the question, how can we best meet those needs from a societal perspective, which includes things like the conventional reliability and affordability and all those values we don't throw those away but we've got some new values having to do with greenhouse gas impacts and resilience that we need to bring into the mix well how can we meet those needs in the most practical cost-effective way and der's then bring all these new potentials that enable us to meet local needs locally and You know, the grid is there, it doesn't have to go away, but it becomes, in a sense, the backup or the residual supplier after we do as much as we can locally
0: my mind just immediately wants to go to, all right, how do we do this? Like, what are the mechanisms of implementing these ideas? I mean, you note that DERs have been hampered thus far by the lack of market structures that would enable them to get paid for the full value of their flexibility, for example, which would help them scale up to a full commercial level if they could get paid for that. And you mentioned some of the things that they can be paid to do, like smoothing out loads, and I assume you're thinking about time-shifting demand. So how do we get from here to there? Like, are we still essentially beholden to state regulators to create these new market opportunities for DERs? And if so, you know, what's their motivation? Or how can we compel them to undertake this journey into the unknown, knowing, as we do, that regulators tend to be very risk-averse? Well,
1: I think risk-averse averse works to the advantage of this program if they really look at the risks. And Mm. there are some risks associated with not doing anything, with not changing.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contained, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year, or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month, and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artistic Personal podcast featuring high-quality cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item one. As if in response to Lorenzo, one week after we recorded this interview, the PJM Interconnection, the grid operator for 13 mid-Atlantic states in Washington, D.C., filed a proposal with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to offer new separate pricing rules for the day ahead in real-time markets to better reflect the different opportunity costs of a resource in each market and to enable more participation in the markets by DERs. Quote, as the system becomes more dependent on renewable resources, the need for flexibility from all types of resources will increase due to the uncertainties involved in forecasting actual wind conditions and cloud cover on a given day, the PJM said. And, quote, more effectively valuing this flexibility will allow for the ongoing seamless integration of these resources in the future. The PJM made the move to put an end to over a year of fruitless squabbling among the market participants, which is contrary, I think, to the process that Lorenzo imagines, but the idea that markets are going to have to evolve relatively quickly to accommodate the new reality of DERs is clearly dead on. Item 2. Florida Power & Light plans to retire two natural gas-fired power plants that were built in the 1970s and have reached the end of their useful life, and replace them with a huge 409-megawatt, 900-megawatt-hour battery called the... F. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikesugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.